0: Welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotton Adebayo. I'm Andy
1: Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney.
0: On today's show, the Stamford Bridge, too far for Atletico. Did they throw too much caution to the wind? Could an average Real Madrid end up winning the whole flipping Champions League? And... You might well describe them as chocolate and cheese, but could the Dutch and the Belgian leagues get together under one groove and which second-tier leagues might follow suit? So before we get to the Stamford Bridge too far for Atletico, is it now, gentlemen, as the Champions League reaches the quarterfinal stages, is it now clear that it's between... Bayern, as usual, and Manchester City. Miguel? Uh,
1: I wouldn't say it was just between them. I think there's a pretty decent field. What I would say is, um, to use a Wengerism, uh, they are the two super favourites. remember Wenger, uh, he used to bring it up in his Arsenal press conference a lot, recalling 88-89, uh, around that period when he was in the competition at Monaco. And he told one of the staff, we can forget the Champions League this year because Milan are the super favourites. And it does feel like that at the moment with the level City and Bayern are playing at. But, I mean, the recent history of the Champions League has basically been, especially with Manchester City, no matter the form they've been on in in domestic competition, one game can undo them. Or not just one game, but one decision from Pep Guardiola. And actually, an interesting thing there with, with City is I wonder whether it's possible they've peaked a little too soon this season, uh, which is something that's going to tell. Uh, But I think there's enough dangerous teams there for us not to think it's going to be a straight run through for either City or Bayern. Even Liverpool, who've been so poor domestically, I mean, they they have a history of lifting in Europe. I think they'll be dangerous to play. And as I suppose we're going to go on to eventually, I was very impressed with Chelsea last night.
2: Yeah, Miguel, I agree. I think um, Chelsea always had the tools in that they always had the squad and we saw in the group stages that even when things weren't quite working domestically under Lampard, the fact that if they could defend well, they always had the players to win games without necessarily playing well in them, which I think goes an incredibly long way in the Champions League or any cup competition. Um, with City, I still have this little element of doubt just because um, they beat a Gladbach side who were not in a great place over those two legs and who they're better than anyway, but um, weren't quite punching with the same sort of gravity that they were in um, the group stage when they made things difficult for for Real Madrid and, and Inter. Um, and I, I just want to be convinced more by Manchester City, really. And I think that can only really be done once they get past the quarterfinals, given what's happened with them. And I, I don't really feel like we can tie domestic form to... Champions League I'm, I'm sure we'll come to later in this podcast but in terms of Bayern I think the fact that they had this little dip and now they've come back quite strongly bear in mind for the first leg of that Lazio game they only had six players on the bench and now um, Gnabry's back and firing uh, Goretzka is back and firing which is absolutely huge so if, if I had to give a I I agree with Miguel the field's good but if I had to give a, a slim favourite I'd, I'd still go by and I think you'd go
0: Bayern over Man City and you'd agree with that I'm presuming Miguel yeah
1: yeah I think so yeah I think Paris Saint-Germain could be very dangerous in that regard as well uh, and yeah, I I have a bit of a hunch about Chelsea though I've, I've had this for a while I think Andy talking there about the squad size is absolutely key because I think it's the one major advantage Chelsea have over absolutely everyone in Europe and in England I think it's why they're going to be a very good very good contender for the Premier League next season, and while they'll probably finish second this season, but their strength and depth is incredible. And in a season like this, where we probably haven't really seen the full effect yet of this congested schedule, that could really become apparent in, a- in April. And the way Chelsea can just gonna bring like top class attackers out to throw in another, it, it's it, it will make a difference. Uh, and th- like from the game last night, it looks like they they're starting to really understand Tuchel, Tuchel's way of playing.
0: Well, clearly Miguel's itching to talk about the Stamford Bridge uh, challenge for Atletico Madrid, who went into that second leg 1-0 uh, down. So quite a disadvantage. And I, I want to come to Miguel in a moment, Andy, because he, he wrote a really fascinating article about um, just what Real Madrid, sorry, Atletico had to do which arguably they tried to do almost as if they read his piece, but perhaps they tried to do a little bit too much. Miguel was saying that they're too cautious in their style. Is that why Atletico lost or got knocked out of the Champions League? Which is the more salient question?
2: Yeah, I, I think that that is the more salient question. You're right, Dotton, because I think so much damage was done in the first leg. And in the first twenty minutes of the second leg at Stanford Bridge, um, I could see what Atletico were trying to do. They pressed higher than they traditionally have done under Simeone. Certainly in the in the opening years of um, his his tenure there, which is you know a, a really long time now. Um, but once Chelsea got set, I, I felt it was impossible for them really. And um, he did try different things um to 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 mix it up um he he used his subs he changed the shape of the team but by that point it was it was absolutely too late I I do feel they paid for that um lack of proactivity in the first leg which as I've said before I, I do feel is at least partly due to the effects of coronavirus on the squad and that they just didn't really have that much in the tank. And I think if there was any hope for Atletico going into this second game, it was the fact that they're, they're playing much better um, than uh, they, they were around the first leg. But they weren't able to bring that at all to this game at, at, at Stamford Bridge. So whereas I think saying they're the same Atletico they always are is, is not quite the full story. Um, it, was, it was definitely the worst side of them. At uh, uh,
1: Chelsea, I think there, there is more sophistication to what Simeone does than he's often given. Like for example, I, I basically think he's a he's a next level up to say what Jose Mourinho does. There's much, there, there are far greater intricacies to defending and body attacking. And even this team, like the simple signing of Suarez, basically shifted them thirty to forty yards up the pitch in general play. But I still think that's just that's a that's still just a variation on top of what is the fundamental unchanging principle of how Simeone plays, which is basically defense first. Everything is built on the solidity defense. And I think in, increasingly in in the modern game, that is something that just doesn't have the same effect. And I, and I think it does represent a real sea change for football in general. I think kind of wide revolutions in both tactics and sports science is a lot to do this, where you just can't rely on defense in the same way. And I, I mean, I suppose if you, to zoom out a little bit, if you, if you look at the competition, I mean, Porto are maybe the only aberration here. Uh, but, I, but I do think there's, there's impressive variations in the way they play. But I think Simeone, since, since he knocked out Mourinho in the Champions League semi-finals in 2013-14, he is the only manager to play a primarily defence-based approach that gets to the latter stages of the Champions League. And I think that's telling. I think he's a bit of a last man standing in terms of a wider change in the game.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's true, uh, Miguel. And I, I think, though, uh, there, there's got to be a there's got to be a gap um, emphasised between what they're doing domestically and what they're doing um, in in a European sense. Because I think you can say in a European sense, um, his tactical sort of. Um, one-paceness has run out of steam a little bit. But we've seen the very best coaches at a Champions League level um, struggle to adapt as as time goes by. I mean, that that has been the case with Mourinho, um, certainly in knockout football in the Champions League. And you could even argue it's, it's been the case with Pep Guardiola. Um, and I, I agree. I think what people have been who watch Atletico on a semi-regular basis in La Liga, the point they've been making about atletico have changed a lot this season i I tend to agree with you i think tactically they've not really changed that much what's happened is he has got the next set of big personalities Mm -hmm. in terms of the playing staff that can lead atletico forward so not just suarez and his need to be closer to goal um but marcos llorente who has been their best player in, Mm -hmm. in the last 12 months hands down um the regeneration of cocaine I think is, is is really important as well, and I think as, as well as the, the fact that Atletico had two very bad days and we can't judge completely where they are in that, and I still think they're a team in transition because the amount of um, first eleveners that they've turned over in the last couple of years is is, is astonishing, really, for a club at, at, at that level mm-hmm. of of European football, and if they were really in transition. Um, last season, they've got a little bit further down the line this season, but that, that, that they've looked short in, in the Champions League. And I think what two things really struck me from the, the, the game last night. Firstly, um, the fact that Thomas Tuchel, like Julian Nagelsman last year, completely tactically outmaneuvered him. That's not to say Simeone's not a good coach anymore. That's not to say he doesn't have a future with Atletico anymore. Um, But but what it is to say is there's greater variety elsewhere. And I think actually one of the things that's not really been talked about that much, we talked about how important Jorente is to them. Um, Rudiger is the left-sided centre-back who was considered just ballast really in the Chelsea squad under Frank Lampard and yeah. considered trouble in the dressing room and someone they wanted to move on. He was absolutely terrific and he took Atletico's best player out of the game. He was all over him for, for the entire game. I think the other thing is the overwhelming is sense I right? had. Yeah. I think that the overwhelming sense I had from those first 20 minutes in the second leg, as I said, which I thought were, were so crucial is just something cyclical in European football, about the various mm. leagues, I don't think we can say after one season that this league's on the way up and this league's on the way down. But what we can say is La Liga is heading towards a fallow period, and and they are they they are yeah. part of that. And we'll, we'll come on to Real Madrid a bit later, and it's a far from outstanding Real Madrid side as as, as well.
1: Just just on that as well, um, like I think I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but like having talked to a few, co- including a Spanish coach, the 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 view I think within the top circles now is that the style of football that now is most dominant in the league, that pretty much you know changed football just over a decade ago, is now far too passive. It's not intense enough. It's too plodding, and it's, I think, as Andy, you've said before, it's something that Luis Enrique has recognised. But this also, I suppose, feeds into what we're talking about as well, because the point you've made about Tuchel and Nagelsmann outmanoeuvring Simeone is completely true. And I, I mean, when we talk about a manager being past it or a certain tactical sign being past it, it feels like it's just a label, but it's not because well, when you actually break that down, what it's really about it's about what's best practice, and what, I mean, and I suppose figuring out solutions to all problems. And I think I think this is the issue with the kind of the fundamental of Simeone's approach is basically that you know we're just still on the, the, the defensive foundation. Ultimately, it's as if the way he defends now don't have the weapons to deal with modern style, which, I mean, we're, we're seeing great, like, like in terms of the kind of dispositional game that managed, like, that managed like Tuchel, Nagelsmann and Guardiola play. There's so much variety now and so much speed but that amplified by sports science, that kind of traditional defense approaches just can't really, can't block it out in the same way. Gaps will always appear. And that was something that really happened in in the Leipzig game last season. Something which is all the more remarkable given Leipzig. You know, if you look at the level of that squad compared to the level of Atletico's squad in terms of, kind of the names, the status of the players, the age. And then if you, if you contrast that, this real variety of attack, and Tuchel's been so interesting when, he, when he's been talking about in his press conferences over here, but to what you mentioned about how Atletico attack, I mean, it still feels like, rather than any sort of constructed game that is based on interchanges, into understanding, Atletico's attack is still largely based about countering, and also, even if they're playing higher high up the pitch, it's about players doing something out of nothing. I, 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 with Suarez, the chief example, given like mm. there's no there's no greater example of a player yeah. who can do something out of nothing than Luis Suarez. Is it as straightforward as uh, Miguel alludes to,
0: Andy, in that this is a battle between the increased sophistication of attacking uh, tactics, if you like, versus the increasingly Flooding (laughs) sophistication of defensive tactics.
2: Yeah, I I think that there is something to be said for that, Dotton. And I think what I was saying before about Simeone putting that trust in the players uh, to interpret his style, I I still think that's the case. And you've had those um, big players and those big personalities that have stood up like Suarez, as you said, Dotton, like Yorente. Um but i don't think the system gave them an awful amount to work with last night and I think he belatedly worked that out that they they look better when that when they move to three at the back for example, which is something that's really worked for them with uh trippier and Carrasco as as, as wing backs this season um and that gave them a, a little bit more variety. You saw more of Joao Felix in that second half. And I, I know Miguel would probably like to say something on Joao Felix and, uh, and maybe his future there, because that's something that's well, really been in the spotlight over the over the last couple of days.
0: Yeah, Miguel, let's talk about Joao Felix, one of the most exciting strikers. You know, I love him already um, in Europe for me today, young strikers, but also at the back of this, Given that you wrote this article, fascinating article as it is, as to you know the unravelling of the Diego Sime- Simeone tactics at, at um, Atletica, is it, why can't defence be as sophisticated as attack? Why can't that... When you say there's increasing evidence that um, defensive tactics are just too basic in the modern game, why can't defensive tactics be as sophisticated as offensive or attacking tactics?
1: Well, I suppose it kind of comes down to principles that have always been, you know, they're almost eternal in football, which is basically that defence is based on rigour and predictability and almost being stationary, whereas attack is based on creativity and unpredictability. And that's always going to be amplified when there's kind of, you know, structural approaches as we've seen with Tuchel, and really highly sophisticated structural approaches that amplify that. Uh, and like, I mean, so you, you, you raised uh, Joel Felix there. I mean, he's almost a classic example of, of what we're talking about. I've just been talking to a few people around when I was kind of researching an Letigo piece during the week and talking to a few people around who, who know him, basically, or, or from Portugal. And that, I mean, right, it, it was very conspicuous they put him up for a press conference the other day, given the speculation around his future. But I think everyone basically knows that he doesn't like the role he's being asked to play there are real questions whether it's stunting his development. And that, um, from what I've heard, he, they're, they're very interested in a move to England. Be that Manchester City, I, I know he's on their list because they want a kind of a modern centre forward under the age of 24. Even if Haaland is the main option there. Uh, Bruno Fernandes is really pushing Manchester United to sign him. Although, and that's actually not impossible given Cavani may well have played his last game for United. And, and Chelsea themselves have been having a look. Uh, and I, I mean, the feeling is, um, and I suppose it's especially true of Tuchel or Guardiola, that he, his, his game would go on another level in a properly modern system. And, and this really does just sum up this entire issue we're talking about. Where I mean, what, what Simeone does in attack just, uh, it's, it's, it's some way off the top level now. Not to the same degree as with Mourinho. I think there's a bit more to it and a bit more structure to it. But it is an issue. And, and to a certain degree, I have to say, uh, good riddance. I mean, I have huge respect for what Simeone does. (laughs) I I, I should, I mean, but I think as a wrote this in my piece last night, it's respect, but it's never football that's going to be loved. And when you, I I mean, it shouldn't be overlooked. Atletico have been involved in some absolutely epic Champions League ties. I mean, their semi final against Bayern Munich in 2016 was one of the best matches I can ever remember, the second leg. But that is dependent on the other team taking the game to them. When that doesn't happen, Simeone's approach hmm. I mean he's been involved in so many of the most boring games I can remember and this is this is really apparent I think in some of their domestic matches where it becomes this kind of attritional game where one of their players basically Suarez in particular is bailing them out from what would have been another kind of uh, low-scoring dull match.
2: The Joao-Felix thing is re- is really interesting isn't it Miguel I mean I, I'm a big fan like you Dotton I tend to have limited sympathy because Simeone was already famous for this. He knew what he was getting into and he knew that he would be uh, lent on to provide those moments of magic. Although I still think they've kind of missed a trick by the fact that he's also a player, as we saw at Ben Vika, who can score headers in the penalty box and they've maybe not got the delivery in for him to, to do that. Um, if this was the NBA, I could definitely see a three-team trade with... Griezmann ending up back at Atletico and maybe maybe Joao Felix going to going to City and Barcelona taking bad contracts of course as we know Barcelona already have plenty of bad contracts as well as this not being the NBA but um going back just to finish um about the defending thing I think you have to look at that turnover of players and think they haven't got that back four of Juan Fran, Felipe Luiz, Miranda and Godin anymore and they can't defend their own penalty boxes as well as they used to so that's another place that there's going to be natural evolution of course the introduction of VAR means there's kind of a, a limit on the rough stuff ironically as they got kind of done by VAR last night early on in the only thing that could have given them a glimmer
0: Miguel, Andy's already touched on a possible fallow period uh, for La Liga. And when you see the performance of Real Madrid against Atalanta, okay, Real Madrid made it look easy, but do you think that they were impressive? Because, of course, if La Liga doesn't have its impressive top clubs firing, then Andy's argument that lean times are to come is probably you know, much more of a valid one.
1: No, I thought they were distinctly unimpressive. And I mean, for all people might go on about how they still got the job. When, I mean, when you break that match down, and again, it touches on a topic we've talked about on the pod before, that's still a match between a super wealthy club and a club with comparatively meagre resources. Uh, that, that That's the difference. Real Madrid still have mm. a better calibre of player than an Atalanta, no matter how an Atalanta coach. And, and coaches like Gasparini in those situations always have to, are all, always fighting the tide. But now, Madrid are becoming a victim of this themselves and that Madrid and Barcelona, in terms of financial standing, are falling down that order, which, which is where we really get into the issue of why we're entering a follow period. Because even if they're able to, say, sign a major star of a year, like as it was pointed out to me last week, you know, say when Perez goes to a Spanish bank to try and sign... You know, a star, he will argue it's crucial to the business model that Madrid has at least one star every year, which is true. But they, they don't really have the finance anymore to create these super squads, which is going to be really necessary in this issue going forward. I, I did a piece in this ahead of um, Paris Saint Germain Barca and the, the wider term effects of the uh, Neymar transfer. But the, the, the Spanish clubs, and particularly the Spanish Big Two, given this is, this is the level we're really talking about and how they have to compete with the super clubs, they're being squeezed in a few directions. So, uh, first of all, they don't have the revenue streams anymore that the super clubs do, which is why you see suddenly Real Madrid potentially entering into business relations with Saudi Arabia because the, 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 the socio model, even though I still think it's, it's the model that should be the case for European football. And one of, the, one of the problems of European football is that not enough clubs have it, rather than the socio model being the problem in and of itself. But it's, it's financially limiting in them. Added to that, you've got the issue with... Um, the tax band in Spain now, which is one of the highest in Europe. So, I mean, uh, I mean as someone who's left-leaning myself, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that <laughs> you know, t- tax for such a such, such, such well-renumerated players should be lowered. But the argument from people <laughs> in Real Madrid is that it's, um, it, it's penalising them in terms of the squad they can put forward. And then, of course, added to all this, you've got the existing financial situations of the club's as well as squads that are really bloated on big contracts. And, you know, players like Rakitic, although Barca did manage to offload them, or Modric, who were kind of, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s on huge contracts. And the, the clubs need to offload these players to replenish. But the players won't go under contract because in the modern football market, they're not going to find deals that they want. So they'll just sit in what they've got. And it's creating a real kind of a fatberg almost for the, for the two Spanish clubs. Uh, that's kind of, you know, added into this wider decline that we're talking about. The one thing I would say, and Barca are almost pointer this, from everyone you talk to, the Spanish production line in terms of talent, a quality player, is still among the best in Europe. So that won't cease. They're, they're still going to have, you know, because the coaching is, is the coaching at that level is so good. And, and even with the, with the Barca squad, you can see it now. There's actually, they've, got the, they've suddenly got the makings of quite a good team for kind of two, two or three years' time which might well see Leo Messi stay. But it's it's supposed it's about building on top of that. And I think that's why, yeah, one of, one of the few reasons we're going to enter this fallout period. And I, I mean, I know there's always this aura about Madrid and the Champions League and they get it done and you don't expect it. But this isn't the Madrid of 2013, to 2018. I, I mean, if they get a bad draw on Friday, I think they're done.
2: I, I suppose the question really, Miguel, is... What was that Real Madrid that won three successive Champions Leagues? Because they weren't one of the best Real Madrid sides I've ever seen either. I mean, I agree if they're gonna um, if they're gonna build with youth, and that's what they've wanted to do for a long time, then Zidane is emphatically not the right coach for them. Um, what he is a good coach for is leaning on those experienced guys, which they're very happy to do for the the short term. And we saw Benzema's influence, but particularly recently with the, the Derby equaliser against Atletico, the way he won the game in which they played very poorly against Elche at the weekend. And, and th- then this game against Atalanta, um, where, again, I, I thought it was a, a similar gap really to... Chelsea and Atletico in 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 the second leg after a, a a narrow and of course identical first leg result, but it's it's interesting how Madrid managed to have those moments of tempo with an older team. I think the fact that Benzema's had that little rest is is, is working out very very well for that season, even if it was um, an an enforced rest. Um, but it's it's clear that in terms of their Long-term strategy, and I, I suspect we'll come on to Atalanta in it in, in a bit. It kind of poses a problem, doesn't it, that they're so heavily tied to a returning Benzema and a returning Ramos because they're kind of locked into that cycle. Where you know, I think the footballing world at large, chaps, just does, does see um, Ramos um, getting given what he wants by Florentino Perez, which is a, a two or three-year contract as opposed to a one-year one. Year one as a no-brainer. But you're right, in the current environment, in the direction in which they're going, it's a lot to be tied into. And the same with Benzema. The way he's playing at the moment, he's seen as a, a, a nailed-on contract extension. Now, on the other end of it, and I'm not saying this is a possibility, but the Lyon president, Jean-Michel Olas, said, well, we'd love to have you home, but at some point soon, not when you're old and spent. And he acknowledged it's completely dependent on... Uh, what really happens with Real Madrid's sporting success for the rest of the season. Because he knows if it goes well, he'll stay at Madrid. But they're being backed into a corner, aren't they? Where there are two things that they're kind of going to do, but (laughs) should they do?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, mean, Benzema, it's it's true that he's probably been hugely underappreciated for the last few years, especially in that Madrid glory area. And he's a very, very good player. But the reason he's been underappreciated is because He's not, he's not as good as the stars that he basically did the donkey work for. Uh, and it's almost a, it's a reflection of almost Madrid's level. So As their mm. level has dropped, Benzema has kind of stayed the same. So now he's suddenly the star in the team. And that in itself, and it, this is, I don't mean I need mm. to disrespect Benzema here, but that's an indication of, of the problem. And I mean, I, I mean, we, we, you're talking about kind of, I suppose, what did Madrid represent in that 2013-18 period? Because it's one of the, kind of the great ironies of the modern Champions League and I, well, like this, this goes back throughout its history, really. Even, even to the Madrid team that won five in a row. Where they won five in a row, they were the best team in Europe five times. And yet only, only on two of those occasions were they the best team in Spain. There wasn't even an argument that domestically, Barca were a far better side in 59-60 under Herrera. But that's knockout football. And it's kind of been the same with Madrid over the past half decade, where we kind of have these images that winning three Champions Leagues in a row, it's the gold standard achievement in football. This is, this is what marks history. But yet, when you kind of go a little Mm -hmm. deeper, like when Bayern did it in the 70s, I think they they finished 11 in the league one season. It's still just a cup cup competition. And in that sense, Madrid were almost, throughout that period, they didn't mark the game in any sort of ideological or tactical sense. But what they did do was, they were the ultimate representation of a super club at that period. Basically, they had this kind of critical mass of stars, which meant they were almost guaranteed to get into the Champions League quarterfinals every, every season. And from there you only need, what, two or three good performances, a bit of luck, and you've got a real chance of winning the most prestigious trophy in football. But, of course, the most, winning the most prestigious doesn't necessarily mean you are the best at that given time. And, I mean, and again, that's not to do down what they were. They're still obviously a very good team, but there was always something missing with it. Um, and, and they never felt quite as good as three European Cups in a row or four or four in five years should indicate. And now what's happened is that basically the model of what a super club is, is moving past them a little bit. And it's it's something they're they're struggling to keep up with.
0: But if they were to win in the quarterfinals, Andy, uh, going against the possibility that uh, they might get a bad draw, if they were to win in the next round, it would make a huge difference for their prestige or otherwise, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, I guess. And and for their legacy, it goes back to what Miguel was saying. But I see a lot of similarities in what they can do now as to what they could do in terms of grind results out. Um, Going back to those last couple of campaigns, I mean, the thing that gave me a bit of hope for Atalanta going into the second leg, and I I thought they were a bit naive and gave one of their poorest performances – um, they're still a bit of hit and miss in the Champions League because they're still getting used to the level. It's only their second season in the in in, in the Champions League proper, um, but Real Madrid. Before that, you look at their results in knockout ties. They'd lost three and drawn one of the last four home legs before they received Atalanta, which I I think is is something that's worth worth noting the fact that they're not completely invulnerable and perhaps that comes into play again when they play in the next round depending who they draw because they were beaten deservedly by Manchester City at the Bernabeu last year and then you go back they just about got a draw with with Bayern that got them through they were hammered by Ajax they were hammered by Juventus and got out of jail with that late Ronaldo penalty which we know all about and Gigi Buffon's still talking about so um, you know that, that they 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 find a way to get it done. Just about under Zidane, and that is something that unites his his second period and his his first period. Does it mean that they're anywhere near the best team in Europe? I, I don't think it is, but it also means that they can't be ruled out for this competition this season.
0: What's it going to take, Miguel, for for Real Madrid to
1: reset? Um. Well, I just to pick up on anybody. I do think that ability to get it done. Is finite, and I'd be, I'd be stunned if they go if they, if they go anyway far this season or past the quarterfinals. But let's see, as I, as I said a few minutes ago, it is a cup competition, but it, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, as, as you've said there, Dotton, it doesn't uh, negate the fact that both they and Barcelona, and probably let it go too, uh, but more so the big two need a reset. And I mean, ultimately, it kind of almost comes down to they need to just they need to be totally stripped down. Uh go back to kind of a, a group of young hungry players and almost bring uh bring in coaches with Germanic names to apply a modern pressing that's been absent in spanish football that does i mean <laughs> that sounds a little bit basic, but it does feel like it, it's what's needed but i mean one of the ironies is that even though bars have far greater financial problems, they're probably actually a little bit further down the road on any potential reset like this because of the fact suddenly they've got so many young players. In a way that Madrid don't quite in the same way. Like there was about three or four years ago when Perez did change transfer strategy slightly and he went for a group of of, of young players, uh, you know, like Asensio, like Isco. But they've they probably stagnated in a way, didn't they? They haven't. They haven't become the true successors in the way that that was maybe expected. And now that that team feels a little bit stale, whereas with Barca there's a little bit more spark about. They're kind of the, the young group they've got at the moment. But I still think this is dependent on a kind of wider philosophical, philosophical overhauls of both clubs.
0: Let's talk about a tantalising prospect in the structure of European leagues. The possibility, and it is only a possibility at the moment, or a proposal the possibility that the Belgian Pro League could link up with
2: the Dutch Serie divisie Can you see that happening, Andy? Um, I can see it happening, even though it's not that far down the line yet. It's, it's probably worth clarifying what happened in a meeting between the Belgian clubs uh, this week. Um, the 25 Belgian clubs, um, pro-Belgian clubs said they're in favour of Um, as a group uh, in exploring it further in taking further studies on it. Um, Now, I do feel that this is a big moment simply because that consensus hasn't been reached before. I think the pandemic definitely plays into it. I think um, the the fact that um, we we have to note that the the, the Eredivisie clubs haven't had their say in it and they would probably be the senior partner in said league um, if it was say a, a a 20 team league you would probably have 12 dutch and 8 belgian um in in the top division and if it was an 18 team league maybe um a, a 10 and 8 or, or um something like that but um it is is worth looking at that and i think particularly with a finite end date as well because both the domestic TV deals in the Netherlands and Belgium are, are up in in twenty twenty five. Now, more important things did come out of this meeting, in my opinion. Notably, that the top flight teams in Belgium are strongly in favour of having a large injection of um, B teams in in the second tier uh, next season, and that that is soon, you know, and that is something that would fundamentally change the face of the competition and the sporting integrity of the, the the competition and is is something that i personally am, am very much against um and i know the the chairman of molenbeek for example said oh, look, that that is just going to be the end of the, the 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 second division which has already been affected by farm teams um from bigger european clubs and and agents get, getting their claws into it um but I, I do really think it comes back to the TV rights. And and this is the thing, you know, I think you can look at particularly what's happened in um, the Netherlands and Belgium in recent years. And you look at, say, for example, Ajax's run to uh, the semi-finals semifinals of, of, of the Champions League. Now, for, for one, that is an incredible achievement because if you're starting from the second qualifying round and within a couple of minutes of getting in the final, that is a journey and a half. But the fact that it's given them um, such an extraordinary amount of money, sp- particularly um, dwarfing what they get in, in, in terms of the domestic broadcast d- deal. In the same year, they were able to move on uh, De Ligt and De Jong, players that were youth team products and sold for pure profit. I'm really interested to see what happens in the Netherlands over the next few years because, you know, you look at Ajax being able to go and buy Sebastian Aller, for example. um in the um, in the winter transfer window. And that's a transfer, really, to buy a Premier League player and a Premier League starter for a Netherlands club is is extraordinary, really, and, and, and shows that, you know, it's going to be really hard for someone to take the title off them in, in the next couple of years. And even PSV, who've spent not just a lot on players, but a lot on wages, a, a lot on the likes of uh, Aaron Jahavi, Mario Goetzer, um, this season, and they're still miles off the top. I mean, realistically, they're not getting there this season, which would be a a huge failure for Roger Schmidt, given the amount of resource that's been put at his, his disposal. So the money is being spent to take these clubs to the next level. And I think the bigger ones just think they want something back. And whether that's good for football in the Netherlands and Belgium overall, I think is a different debate, but I can see it happening.
0: Can you see it
1: happening, Miguel? Um, I think UEFA you, you have always been resistant to this type of idea. And that is almost one mental stumbling block, block that has to be overcome. Um, but the reality is that something has to give. And it's 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 one of the reasons, I mean, for, a lot of people might think this is kind of, you know, it's a fairly dry subject about kind of the structure of a league. This is actually one of the, this is something everyone should be paying attention to because I think it's absolutely crucial to the future of European football and ties up a lot and sums up a lot of discussions we've been having about super clubs, about the kind of structure of the Champions League, about even about kind of the size of Real Madrid in that regard. I mean, what's basically happened with football over the past few years is that the old structures, the the basic domestic national leagues, and European competitions, they they're not really holding because of the games embrace of hyper capitalism and the lack of regulation. Because what it's basically done is it's meant a few leagues, and it comes back to what Andy's talking about: TV contracts. A few leagues, because of their size, they have huge TV contracts, which basically which becomes a self fortifying cycle where they can afford better and better players, which creates better and better commercial profile which just perpetuates and perpetuates to the point now we have you know a, a group of super clubs and all the kind of traditional big clubs from Europe's medium sized leagues from Benfica to Celtic to Ajax to PSV uh, to Anderlecht they just they just can't compete in that environment because their tv market isn't big enough so what what gives obviously the major clubs, they're not going to give up their... I mean, it's one of the ongoing discussions in the European football now about of resources, whether UEFA increased solidarity payments so that less money, less... I mean, it, it, there's a lot has been made over in the last week about how, despite the fact that Barca and Ajax both got to the semifinals in 2018-19, Barca got something like 40 to 60 million more, which is ridiculous. Um So, I mean, the big clubs aren't going to vote to redistribute money away from them given they're, they're essentially trying to you know reconfigure the game so they maintain their income so the only really potential solution to this one that is to start changing the domestic leagues and that means amalgamating more of these leagues so they they're kind of they're bigger competitions and they're more thereby more attractive as as leagues and to to TV contracts uh so I mean it's if this happens you could say see and I, I do think it's a good idea for those reasons because basically Ajax, Anderlecht, PSV, Feyenoord—they can all be bigger. They can all be bigger and better clubs in a bigger and better leagues. That—that—that's that, the way it follows, and it's, it, it'll be it will be much more interesting. And I think if that happens, then it could cause a bit of a—you know—the levy could break. We could well see, you know, uh, a Balkan league. We could see uh, perhaps a Celtic league, say, with Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of a lot of potential for this. For this Around Europe, and I think it's a, it's a really interesting subject that is probably crucial to the future of the European game.
0: And I'm sure you'll agree with that, Andy. But the concerns that Miguel has, notwithstanding, could it could it deliver uh, an amazing league? Really, that's what I want to know. Will, will we see um, a league, Belgian stroke, Netherlands league that competes against or competes with the likes of? Uh, the Premier League, or at the very least the Bundesliga, uh, Ligue 1, uh, La Liga, etc.
2: Well, I think Ligue 1 is the one, actually, Dotton. I think that's really worth underlining because what's happened with um, the bottoming out of the TV contract in France, and of course, the future for French clubs, um, French top flight clubs, um, a lot of them as well, um, is, is not totally secure. So, um, I think depending on where France is in in a couple of years' time, which is very uncertain, I think you have to ask whether a joint a a Benelux league would be or or a Benelux league would be in a position to 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 really challenge it as um, for its place in the top five leagues in in Europe. I think that's a a really good question. Um, But I think it's also worth saying that in a time where we're acutely aware of the financial pressure on clubs and I think that's why a lot of these because of the current situation that we're we're living in as not just a football community but a world community I think is 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 tempting to just get into conversations about money and it's, it's, it's tempting I think for a lot of people to forget what supporters feel about this when They're not in the stadiums and they're struggling to make their voices heard. And, you know, I think, as always, this has to go back to the fans because in terms of local rivalries, in terms of that sort of proximity and community and tradition, all those things matter. You can't just say, as Miguel says, in this era of hyper-capitalism, that, yeah, we don't care about that stuff anymore it counts. It's what makes football what it is, and I, I think it's really, really worth um, focusing on, rather than just thinking, "Let's like rush this over the line now," because because it needs to be done now. Because we need the money now. Look, all, all the—I I, I don't really like the word—but all the stakeholders, all the invested people, need to be involved in this in this sort of uh, in this sort of decision. And I think it's really, really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely important, 100%. And when you talked about the local communities, etc., you realise the magnitude of this. However, Miguel, you're developing something new. There are local communities and local rivalries between Belgium and Holland in any case. I wonder, when you look at it from afar, which league uh, looks like most likely to benefit from this out of the Dutch League and the Belgian well,
1: League? I, I think both because I think they both have issues. I mean, it's why the traditionalist in me notwithstanding and uh, I, I just think they're more positives and negative solutions I mean, also, you're retaining the old rivalries and retaining the old, but adding something more to it and just making it something that's more lucrative. Um I know I know, we shouldn't be looking at those terms but that's kind of the reality of European football now and we're at the point where, and it's why I said at the top, I suppose this almost comes down to a mental block. You you wait for having principle been against these sort of moves in the past, but it, it may be the only viable solution. You a in a in a modern football world where there are roadblocks at every other corner, and where the big and it might be the only response to the big club, which is basically trying to trying to bring everyone up a level. And the only way you bring everyone up a level is to put them in bigger TV markets and give them, and, and thereby give them greater global commercial profile that, that's why I, I do think it could be really kind of revolutionary for dutch and belgian football
0: having said that i noticed that they left luxembourg out of their historical and cultural friendly relationship <laughs> they used to be called the <laughs> benny lux countries but now they're just going for the benny liga anyway Time, gentlemen, to suggest a game of the week. One from each of you, please. A tantalising game that we can all look forward to this weekend.
2: Well, I'm um, inextricably drawn to Sunday night at the moment. It was uh, the Seville derby last weekend. Uh, this weekend, I think it's got to be uh, Lyon versus Paris Saint-Germain, eight o'clock Sunday night. Um, Paris Saint-Germain have had an interesting little spell. Of course, they uh, lost at home to Nantes, who were in the relegation zone when they, that they were coming to Paris and went a goal down in that game, which was a real shock result. Of course, <clears throat> there was a story about the, the Paris Saint-Germain um, players and families having their, their, their houses burgled, including um, Angel Di Maria, which was why well, he got taken off by Mauricio Pochettino in the second half and Pochettino accompanied him down the tunnel and explained what had happened to him which I thought was really great coaching and the sort of um compassion that is going to make those players really really buy into Pochettino and I think really reminded us of what is what is so great about him. Uh Leon is still just about hanging in there. They've got lots of attacking threats. They've not played nearly as well in 2021, as they did in the first half of the season, a bit like Atletico, actually. Um, but they will feel there is an opportunity for them here, an opportunity which could be snuffed out by the return of Neymar, no less.
0: Tantalising. <laughs> Even you were smiling, Miguel. So what, what have you got to suggest that will match that?
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my eyes were drawn to Leon Paris, fancher Germain as well. But um, and I, uh, after that, I would have said maybe Atletico to see how they recover uh, given I think this is going to be one of the most interesting things about their season now because there is a sense that their position at the top of the Spanish league is increasingly fragile as Barca kind of bear down on them uh, but that's somewhat undercut by the, by the fact they're playing Alaves I think they should have enough there uh, so I'm going to go with uh, Roma Napoli given where both teams lie in Serie A and how that top four chase is uh, it, I mean there's a, there's, a, there's a fair bit of spike to it